it took knocking on and banging down a lot of doors to initially get a lot of those writing opportunities. I mean, I've been rejected more times than I've been published, but it didn't deter me because it was just something that, you know, I was passionate about. This is something that I wanted to do. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello, fellow human. I hope you're doing well. I hope your week is off to a good start. And if you're Canadian, you're probably watching the new NHL hockey season. Uh, I certainly am. And so what better time, I thought, than to have a hockey historian on my podcast. Don't often talk about sports on this show. In fact, I don't think I've brought it up at all since we started this podcast. But I'm a big hockey fan, and my guest today knows more about hockey than just about anyone else I could think of. Mike Comito is a hockey historian and writer. He's the author of a brand new book called Hockey 365. And he's also a former colleague of mine. We were studying uh, in graduate school. I was doing my master's and he was doing his PhD at McMaster University and hadn't caught up in a while. So I, I thought it was a good time to reach out and see what Mike's up to. And what better time than the start of the NHL season to, uh, to spend a bit of time geeking out about hockey. So I wanted to talk to Mike today about number of topics around publishing and social media and, of course, the great sport of hockey, how he approaches maintaining work-life balance, fatherhood, that kind of thing. I, I, I found it very inspiring to, to connect with Mike today to sort of see how he approaches all this stuff and creating opportunities for himself, and I think you'll find the conversation inspiring as well. Before we get into it, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews are absolutely crucial for podcast success. So if you dig the show and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, I present to you author and hockey historian, Mr. Mike Comito. First off, Mike, thanks for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And it's uh, it's nice to connect with you again, because I guess the last time I saw you would have been, Jesus, six six years ago or something. When were we at McMaster? Or when was I there? I guess it was 20, 2011. So yeah, it's been a while. And, 2010. Uh, 2010, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, started in the fall of 2010, and then um, obviously 2010, 2011. After, uh, in the summer, though, after I finished comps, I moved back to Sudbury, and I've, I've been here ever since. So yeah, it's been, yeah, it's been seven years, I guess. No, eight years. No, seven. Yeah, I don't know. And, and what's that like? I mean, like returning where you grew up and, and I mean, what, what is it like for you at this point in your life coming back to Northern Ontario and kind of basing yourself there? I, it was always part of the plan. My, uh, my wife's family's right. I mean, at the time when I, when I started my PhD at McMaster, she was, we were just, we were still just dating. Uh, but the plan was always to come back to Sudbury. Her family's all from Sudbury. You know, my parents and my, uh, my sister live, lives, they live in Sudbury and all of our friends were there. Right. So it was kind of, it was kind of a trade-off where, you know, she moved down to, to the, the Hamilton area for the year. So I could do my in-course work as part of grad studies. Uh, you know, she found a great job teaching Georgetown anyway so it kind of worked out but our ultimate goal was always to, to move back here I think it's just uh, it's a place where a lot of our friends had had moved away from when they were in their you know early to mid 20s but you know as they started to get older and started to settle down and have kids of their own you know they all started to move back so there was a time when you know when I was younger and all of my there was an exodus among my group of friends because they wanted to you know check out life in another city moving to Toronto other big cities like that uh, but Sudbury and I think a lot of cities in Northern Ontario that, you know, that are great for, uh, for raising families and you know, even buying a home that it has this, this call where people come back because it's a great place to settle down. And so I think that that's, uh, that was our plan all along. And so 
it's great to, to be here. I've been back in Surrey now for, for yeah, eight years and, and it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I have lots of fond memories in Northern Ontario growing up. My dad actually used to make like make outdoor rinks and stuff. So I spent a lot of time on the ice in the winter. And yeah, I don't I don't get terribly homesick that often. But in the wintertime, sometimes I I, uh, I miss that. And and let's let's start talking about hockey. So the subtitle of this podcast is uh, a podcast for passionate people. And I always tell people like I don't really care what you're what someone's interested in, as long as they're interested in something, as long as they're passionate about something. And in your case, why, why hockey? Where, where does this passion come from? Hockey had always been something that, you know, I think I'd, I'd loved it as a kid. I was fascinated by the game. Uh, I loved playing it, although I was never quite good enough uh, to play at an organized level or even play at a competitive level. Um, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid too. So I think that had an impact on my ability to join, um, an organized league of, of some kind, but I played a lot on, you know, outdoor rinks, uh, frozen ponds, things like that. And so it was always something that, you know, was, it was always there for me. And then, you know, as I got older, I got into hockey in different ways. I started following it more closely with, you know, with things like fantasy drafts and pools and, you know, getting university talking with your buddies about the scores in the games and, you know, how everything's shaping up. Uh, and then I actually got back into hockey a little bit more, started to play more. Um, I now play regularly with a great group, great group of guys here in Sudbury. You know, I never played at that kind of level where it was on a regular basis. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting for me now as somebody who's kind of rediscovered hockey, you know, in their late twenties and now into their thirties, you know, that is something I just, I can't wait to get out there every Friday to play. You know, it doesn't really matter what my skill level is. It's just great to be on the ice. But, but all that to say that I've always had the, I think the love for the game and the passion for the sport that as I was kind of working through my studies, you know, at McMaster, I was doing a completely different thing. I was studying environmental history, but as, uh, as I started to go through that and started to find some different opportunities that I didn't intend on, I started to realize that I could take, I think the skills that I was developing as a historian and applying them to hockey. I, I thought that there was a great opportunity there to kind of start to explore the history of hockey using those skill sets that I was at that point using to kind of, to study environmental history. And so one thing kind of led to another. I started writing my own blog, which was this uh, this weird Frankenstein of Canadian history mashups with NHL previews. Uh, I don't know how many readers I had for that. Probably my mom was probably one of the only consistent ones because it was kind of a weird thing where if you liked Canadian history, one part of the blog was great. But if you only liked the NHL, you probably didn't care about the the, the Canadian history component. Uh, but that kind of started to fuel my my passion for for writing about hockey. And then that kind of led to other writing opportunities, more regular opportunities with some more mainstream outlets. And then, and then from there, um, it just kind of took off. Uh, got some other great opportunities working um, and doing some stuff with the NHL. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I just decided that, you know, writing a book was always something that I wanted to do. Uh, and then that's where I kind of got into the whole, I should probably write a hockey book at this point. You mentioned that, that you've gotten more, uh, you, you're, you play regularly with some, with some friends. And even just being a fan, I mean, you tell me if this resonates with you. You know, we were, I think both of us are, uh, a lot of our work involves a lot of, you know, kind of intense intellectual brain activity and a lot of, you know, analytical thinking, that kind of thing. And for me, hockey and, and probably for me more so baseball, it's it's almost like resting that part of my brain for a while. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I woke up this morning, I'm in Thailand, so I, I watched the, you know, the Leafs game last night. It was my morning. And it kind of, it sounds silly, but it kind of set the tone for my day. You know, it was like this nice kind of, I don't know, it kind of, it, 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 um, I find it refreshing and, and uh, a bit of a recharge when I need it sometimes, you know, like for me, that's what I get from sports now. Does, does that re resonate with you at all? Yeah, I mean, I can relate last night because, you know, I've been waiting for the start of the regular season, you know. Know, after a long day at work doing all sorts of different things, you know, like you said, uh, using your brain for, for that type of stuff to, you know, to get home and, and just to, to crack a beer and to, and to watch the game and really just kind of and just follow, follow the action or, or, or even just kind of follow what's, what people are saying about the game online on Twitter. Uh, you know, that's, that for me is, is kind of a great way to, to, to cap off the day. But I think that in terms of when I'm, I find it's different than when I'm playing because I still feel as though like I'm still using a lot of, uh, I think a lot of those same, uh, 
analytical qualities that I'd like to think that I have on the ice to try to improve my game. Because again, I think that's probably why I'm so attracted to hockey and why I think it's such a great game is because of how, how beautiful it is, how fast it is, how violent it is. But also, you know, when you're playing it, it's so difficult. Um, you're skating around on, on, on these steel blades on ice and you have to try to move around, um, you know, as deftly quickly as possible, but also accepting passes, all these sorts of things where I'm just like, you know, it is, it is taxing, you know, on your brain when you're playing because you're just trying to, you're trying to get to those right areas. You're trying to make the right plays. And I think I put more pressure on myself than probably other people do. But, uh, but yeah, I, I find watching it is certainly more, uh, more of a welcome distraction than, than playing it at times. Yeah, fair enough. And I think that there's an unfortunate stereotype. I'm not sure if it's, it's still around, but I mean, I know there used to be the stereotype that hockey players were, uh, were kind of dumb and unintelligent. And if you look at the best hockey players, you know, we're talking about Bobby Orr and Gretzky and Messier and these people, they're incredibly intelligent individuals. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it does take a lot of, um, an absolute, like a lot of brain power. It's been years since I played, but, uh, but I, yeah, I, um, I remember that, uh, that feeling that you're describing for sure. You mentioned those players, and another one, you know, for me, just as a as a writer, and obviously someone who you know studies the history of the game, Ken Dryden, um, you know, Montreal Canadiens goaltender, who was you know one of the best goaltenders to ever play, but he, I would also argue that he's probably one of the best hockey writers uh, around. Uh, his his book about his reflections of, of playing as a Canadian uh, was is still probably the gold standard for hockey books. And then even, you know, he's done some work more recently with, with concussions in hockey and exploring that side of the game, which I think is, is, is obviously still an ongoing issue that the league is going to have to resolve at some point. But, yeah, he's, he, he's one of those rare kids where, you know, you could uh, – certainly a lot of people would have looked up to him and, and wanted to emulate his style in net. And now I think other, another generation of people like myself who are, who are aspiring hockey writers, uh, you know, Ken Dryden is still somebody that I would look to as – as somebody who I would, you know, if I could, if I could be the, the Ken Dryden of writing in any capacity, I would, I would be happy with that. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating story because correct me if I'm wrong, but he he retired. I mean, he was so to to give some non hockey fans some context. He he was one of the best goaltenders of all time, and he retired pretty near the peak of his career, kind of thing, right? Like he was quite young, and he went on to study law. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he uh, he did give up the game pretty early. Yeah, he went on to be a lawyer. Um, he'd also served uh, as a member of parliament later, I believe, um, and I think even maybe a senator. But I might be wrong on that one. But yeah, he uh, he kind of just walked away from the game. You know, I think he, I don't know if he if he, I think he was satisfied with what he wanted to do. But I think he also had other career aspirations in mind as well. And he figured it was it was time to get out and pursue those goals. Yeah, yeah, really interesting guy. He's a great interview too. I've watched a lot of his stuff on uh, on YouTube. This is so much fun. This is such like a hardcore mm-hmm. Canadian centric <laughs> episode. I'm really enjoying <laughs> this. But as long as we're talking about this, one thing that I was I was thinking about when I was uh, preparing for this to to be talking to you today, you know, I'm I'm an expat and I'm a traveler, and you know, when you go around the world as a Canadian, it doesn't take long. You know, when you introduce yourself and where you're from for for the topic of hockey to uh, to come up. I mean, it's it's very, very linked to, uh, to you know, Canadian identity. Do you have any sense of how and why that came to be? Like, how did hockey come to be Canada's national sport, in your view? I, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's one that I think I, I still grapple with. It's, it's a question I think looms large in, in a lot of the writing I've done. And I've never really sat down to, I think, put pen to paper. But I think a lot of it just comes from the fact that, you know, that... Um, we, obviously for a long time and this is this is certainly changing now especially uh recently but in the last you know several decades you know canadians for the longest time were the best uh, in hockey and i think that that superiority that we had although you know the, that myth of hockey superiority began to kind of there were some cracks in that in the during the 1972 summit series and it kind of changed the way that we played the game but i think the fact that you know for a long time there was just uh you know canadians were were dominant in the sport and so i think that 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 aspect of it certainly tied into you know making it part of our, our our national pastime in the winter just because we could point to it as you know there's nobody else in the world that that can play hockey better than we do where we produce the world's best hockey players uh but i think again kind of hearkening back to the whole idea of playing uh outdoors i think we have the right climate for it and i think that that naturally uh canadians are suited or naturally drawn to the game because of the fact that you know we tough it out in these Canadian winters and, and a lot of these places across Canada, uh, it's an ide- ideal locations to play and learn the game, you know, on those backyard rinks and or on a you know, frozen pond or frozen lake. So I think the combination of the fact that, 
you know, we like to, and we like to talk about the fact that we live in a cold climate and we like to talk about, you know, that we tough it out in the winters and, you know, we had this much snow and we can, we can champ it out where other people might, uh, might wither, wither and die. And so I think the, the climate mixed with the fact that for the longest time, especially during, uh, the rise of hockey, you know, Canadians, I think could point to their dominance in the sport. Um, certainly that's changing now. I think the, it's the game is growing internationally, and, and there's certainly I don't think you can make the claim at least recently well today that you know the Can- Canadians are the best at hockey anymore. I think that that's um, that would be contested blasphemy uh, on some level, but yeah, but uh, <laughs> not not to say that they're not the best. Uh, you know what I mean? But like yeah. that the, yeah. the the sport is changing, and there's there's other people that are that are contesting for it now. But I think that those things together kind of yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of of this uh, this ethereal thing where I, it's it's tough to put your finger on it, but I would have to say for me anyway, the the weather and, and then just that history of, of dominance I think kind of lended itself to as to why we would kind of uh, gravitate towards it. Yeah, and there's the element of of toughness too, right? Like Canadians, I think we're known as as polite, but also very tough, owing in large part to the climate, and thus you know a really tough kind of sport like hockey is uh, is more appealing to us. As long as we're on this note, I have to ask, just completely selfish question. Fighting in hockey, what are your thoughts? Do you think it's time to take it out or, or what? That's, yeah, that's, so that's a tough one for me uh, because... Can I just, let me, actually, let me know, just, somebody, let me just set the stage. Sorry, I, I just want to cut you off for one minute because I realize that not yeah. all of the listeners are going to be hockey fans. So <laughs> it's, it's actually, there's a part of it that just strikes me as absolutely hilarious that this goes on because there's a there's a component of professional hockey where you can drop your gloves, you can punch your opponent in the face a number of times, be punched in return, and the punishment is that you have to you get a five minute rest, <laughs> and that's and that's fighting. I mean, when you yeah. when you kind of look at it outside of the hockey world and actually look at it objectively, I mean, if you did that to someone on the street, you'd be in jail, right? And and let me let me just yeah. clarify. I mean, I I love fighting in hockey. It's one of the most exciting parts of the game. There's something that appeals to me and a lot of people on a very deep level. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm deeply ambivalent about this issue. Um, but I interrupted you. Please, uh, please go on. No, I, I was about to say that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's one that I struggle with because I think, you know, people of my vintage who grew up, you know, watching hockey in the, in the early 90s and into the 2000s, obviously were accustomed to a game where, you know, fighting was more commonplace and it was obviously celebrated and welcomed. And, and so I have that part of me that, you know, that was, uh, an integral part of the game for me growing up. But now as you know, I'm older and you know, I, I think that I, I like to think I'm an intelligent person. There's this dichotomy of knowing that my lizard brain likes the idea of fighting it, you know, get excited when, when a fight happens, especially when it's a meaningful fight at least. Uh, but also recognizing the fact that there are significant issues associated with, you know, with concussions in the NHL and the players that are battling right now with, with CTE from concussions they sustained during the course of the NHL career, which, you know, often sways towards those that had played the game with a more uh, rough edge, those types of players who were enforcers who dropped the gloves more frequently than some of their peers. So I kind of, it's, it's hard for me to reconcile those two things because in my heart, you know, I, it's, it's something that uh, I think fighting is, is always going to be, is, is a part of the game. But in my brain, I know that it's it's not something I think that in order for the game to continue, in order for the game to keep growing, uh, especially in areas where hockey has not been traditionally the most popular sport, I th- think fighting is going to have to go by the wayside. I I think on, on that level, I'll lament that day when it happens. But I understand that that's, I think, something that has to happen um, eventually. And so it's it's yeah, it's it's an interesting question because I've, I've thought of that often. You know, there was um, last year I was writing a lot for for Violent Gentlemen, which is a clothing company uh, based out of uh, Southern California. And they were co-founded, uh, one of the co-founders of that company uh, was George Peros, who was the prototypical NHL enforcer, although n- today now uh, the enforcers are kind of going uh, by the wayside. But he formed this company that kind of, you know, uh, spoke to the way that he played the game, you know, you know, kind of celebrating that, that rough, you know, style of hockey. And so... I did a lot of Q and A's with players who kind of were uh, personified that style. You know, they 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 were they were utility players, but they could also drop the gloves, those types of things. And and so it was tough for me because I, as much as I knew who I was writing for, I knew who the audience was. They were these were people who were buying you know violent gentleman clothing, and and certainly I have a lot of it, and I like to wear it because it's it's great. But I also wanted to make sure that when I was you know portraying these stories, that I wasn't celebrating. Um, I think some of those 
those undertones that that are that go with fighting that I would try to present a picture of, of fighting and its role in the game, but also ask them the tough questions of, you know, where do you think fighting is going? And, and do you ever stop to think, you know, as you're fighting or as you as you get on the ice, do you worry about the long term effects that this might have on your health? And so that was kind of where I, you know, I, I realized at some point that, you know, if I had this platform, we were going to talk about fighting, we we're going to talk about the role that it has in the game that you kind of have to talk about both sides as well, right? So I'm certainly, I think, in, in your camp where it's it's something that it was a part of the game when I grew up. And so it's always going to be there for me in my heart. But but ultimately, I know that it is, uh, it's not, uh, it's a more complicated issue. And I think that ultimately, it will be best for the game when we were able to get rid of it completely, right? But it's it's always going to be one of those things where hockey is a violent sport and you can get rid of fighting, but these are guys that are very competitive. Uh, it's a collision sport, so obviously tempers are going to flare up. And so you're never going to really get rid of that, that, that obviously that violent edge to the game. But I think that, uh, you know, the league has to do, uh, I think, a better job of, of curtailing fighting, which they have. But more important than fighting is, is getting rid of those, those headshots, which do lead to those, those obviously significant concussions. Yeah, nothing makes me cringe than you see those players go into the boards head first or, you know, the sticks in the throat and things like that. But I want to, as long as we're talking about fighting too, the one more thing I think is important to note is there's a lot of layers to a hockey fight. It's not just two buffoons punching each other in the face. I mean, there's there's a lot, there's often a lot wrapped up in that. There's just the spirit of competition, sure, but there's camaraderie and, you know, sometimes defending honor and, and, and punishment for for uh, you know just reasons like there's it can get kind of shakespearean like there, there's more to a hockey fight than just the fight wouldn't you say oh yeah for sure and i, I think that now especially in the last like since the last or since not since the last lockup but since uh a f quite a few years now that we're starting to see they're they're doing away with staged fights where you know two two players of the same ilk would just kind of say, Hey, do you want to go? And, and they would drop the gloves, but you still have, like you said, those moments where a fight happens because somebody's sticking up for a player. Even I was watching the, the Canucks and the flames last night. Uh, and, um, Travis Amonic, who's a flames defenseman, he's not known for fighting. He's not necessarily, um, you know, huge guy. And he was not happy with the hit on his one of his teammates, and so he confronted, you know, Eric Branson, who is this big guy from the on the Canucks defense, who is known for for chucking his mitts, and so he got into a fight with him, and it was it was obviously a mismatch, but that kind that kind of speaks to those emotions where again it didn't really matter that he was he was he was mis mismatched. It was something that he felt that he needed to do to stick up for his teammate, who you know he felt was was the was the victim of a of a poor hit. And so, yeah, you're. I think you're always going to see things like that happen. Where again, these guys are uh, are lockstep with each other. They're brothers, and so you know they'll stick up for each other. Um, you know, even at times when that means they're going to be, be taking some punishment as well. I'd like to get in now, if we could. I, I'm really curious to know more about your sort of unusual to date career trajectory, because as you mentioned, you were studying environmental history. I remember you were writing a thesis on black bear hunting. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Which is a far cry from uh, from a lot of the work you're doing now in uh, in hockey. Like, are you um, are you aiming towards something specific and in terms of your career? And I'd like to know more about about how you've approached trying to make a living as a as a hockey historian. Like, what 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 has the process been like? What are your goals? If you could just if you speak to that a bit. Yeah, I I mean. It started off like when I first started to get into it when I was still in grad school at Mac. Um, it was just kind of a hobby. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, if you follow the the hockey blogging community, a lot of people, you know, get into it because they, you know, they love the game. They like to write uh, or they like to do some analysis with stats. And so that's it becomes an outlet for them to kind of share their insights and share their work with the world. And and I don't know how many of those people, you know, have career aspirations or if they just that's the, that's their hobby. Right. And so for me, initially, it was a hobby. It was an outlet for me, you know, outside of the the typical work that I was doing, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, I'd been studying the history of black bear hunting and management for four, four and a half years. And so to take, uh, to get away from that for a few hours a night, a night or every so often and write something about, uh, the history of hockey, you know, that was kind of a release for me. But, but as I started to get more writing opportunities and start to, I think, get more, um, high, higher profile writing opportunities than I had just, you know, writing my own blog. I think I started to see that, that yes, this is still a hobby, but this is now a hobby where I can, there's some money involved. And so maybe there's the possibility 
you know, that this could lead to something more. I think that's, you know, I have a great, great job and great career at, at Cambrian College, and I love doing what I do here in applied research. Uh, and so I don't, you know, I don't think there is the necessarily that goal of I'm going to break away and, you know, become a full-time hockey writer. I also just don't know if that's, that's realistic. If that opportunity were ever to present itself to me, I would certainly, uh, you know, love to explore that again. I think very few of us get to do exactly what we love. And so if there ever were a time when, you know, somebody presented me with the opportunity to write about hockey for a living, um, it would be kind of difficult to pass it up because I think that's, that's not what I've been working for all these years, but ultimately, whether I say it or not, I think that in, in my in my heart that would be the goal. Um, you know, but it, it is it is tough to make a living as a, as a full time writer, uh, especially as a hockey writer. There's there's um, but but ultimately, I think that for me, as long as I still love what I'm doing, and it doesn't take away or interfere with my job, uh, or it doesn't interfere or take away from my time with my family, it's something I'm going to continue to do. And if it does lead to other opportunities you know, then certainly I will welcome those. But yeah, it's been, I think it's just been a, the ride itself has been great because like I said, it went from writing on my personal blog to writing for places like Vice and Sportsnet, which led to other opportunities with the NHL. I was part of the NHL's 100th uh, anniversary documentary that came out last year, which was, which was wild to be on camera for the first time and went through this whole interview process to really, I went through a three hour interview for what ended up being a minute in total of screen time, which is fine. I'm not complaining <laughs> wow. about the total screen time, but it, it was a gauntlet. And so it's led to all sorts of cool things like that. You know, I'm now the team historian for my local junior club here in Sudbury, which is amazing. And then I'm also now starting to do a little bit more work, um, with the Los Angeles Kings at the NHL level. I appear regularly on the, the team's official podcast and I'm going to start to do some writing for them, um, in the near future. And so, all these things are just, I think it's, you know, if, if it did lead to a career, that would be, that would be great. And I would certainly, I think have to explore that option. My wife and I joke that the only place that we would move to uh, out of Sudbury would be as if I got offered a, an NHL job as the team historian. And so I keep telling her that, you know, maybe that day will come. It probably won't, but she has to be ready for the day that it does come because, uh, you know, relocating is a big ask, especially with a young family. And she's pretty cemented in her job here as a teacher, but I think she'd be willing to support me on that if an NHL team did come calling that we would uh, we would explore the that opportunity. Do NHL teams have team historians? Most of them don't, um, and there is this tendency within the NHL to assume that a historian what can be is somebody who had covered the game for a long time, so they're obviously a wealth of knowledge. Uh, but they're not a historian in the way that I think that you and I would think. Um, they obviously are skilled writers and they've been around the team for decades. So they certainly are uh, have a, a lot of information, a lot of connections and those sorts of things. Uh, but they don't have a historian, I think, in the traditional sense, you know, that they went through professional uh, training. You know, they went through grad school, all of these things. And so and they kind of some teams cobble it together, you know, using their people from the communications department. It really it just kind of depends on, I think, the appetite internally for having somebody responsible for, you know, maintaining and preserving the history of the organization, engaging with the fans, you know, telling the stories from bygone areas, really trying to connect those stories from the past with what's happening on the ice this season. Because I think there is you can you can harness that narrative of, of taking you know some of those moments from the past while also connecting it with the with the players that are on the ice now as a way to kind of bridge the gap between generations of fans. Uh, so. It's not something you see commonly at the NHL level. Um, I think there's certainly a lot of opportunities. A lot of clubs do do a great job with their alumni and, and, and maintaining their heritage. So I think there's a natural fit, you know, with their, uh, you know, with the alumni area. Because again, your your players, your your alumni are the ones that are going to have a lot of those stories as well. They're going to be the ones that you'd want to go to to collect, you know, some of those those testimonials. And so. I think it's something that, uh, and we've seen with the NHL celebrating its 100th anniversary last year, that it's certainly top of mind now, I think, for a lot of teams. And so I think we're starting to see more and more teams, I think, at least open it itself up to the opportunity of exploring that. Again, as I'd mentioned, I'm going to be doing some stuff with the Kings. And so certainly they're a great organization that speaks to wanting to, you know, tell those stories that you may not typically tell because you don't have a historian on staff or a historian on your roster to do some of that writing. And I mean, you can, I, you can also just see it at another level where again, for your, for your listeners that may not be as familiar with this, but 
the Carolina Hurricanes are bringing back um, the jersey of the team that had previously played in Hartford. The Hartford Whalers had relocated to Carolina uh, in 1990, I think it was 1998 or 1997. Anyway, so they're embracing their own franchise history, although it's contentious right now. But uh, you can start to see these little things where teams are embracing their own history. And so hopefully that leads to more opportunities for other hockey historians uh, to get a shot at, at the bigs, so to speak. Yeah, team historian for the Toronto Maple Leafs. How does that job sound to you, Mike? Now that's yeah, that's the one where <laughs> I think we, I could convince my wife that we have to pack up and, and move down to Toronto. So, I mean, that would be a dream come true for me, obviously as a as a Leafs fan. Um, but I think at this point, uh, you know, whatever team snatches me up first, I will I will pledge allegiance to whoever that may be. How did you uh, start getting involved with the LA Kings? So I had uh, so this kind of goes back uh, to my blogging days. I started writing uh, a blog, or I started no, no, I didn't start writing a blog. I started contributing to a blog uh, called the Royal Half, which was dedicated to uh, you know the Los Angeles Kings, and they were you know they're this great blog that had been around for a long time. They were kind of quirky, really funny stuff. I admired their work for a little while, and so they had an open call out for some writers, and this would have been back in the the 2015, 2016 season, I believe, and so. Um, I pitched them the idea of doing that Frankenstein Canadian history thing I talked about earlier, but doing California history. So what I would do is I would do it on this day in uh, in California history, and then I would mix it with previews of the Pacific Division, which was the division that the Kings play in. And so I did that for a year. I got to make some, I think, some contacts with some folks who kind of who work within that uh, – within the uh, Los Angeles Kings in terms of following the team and, and writing about the team. And so I got, uh, I got to know this, this gentleman by the name of Jesse Cohen, who, who does um, the Kings official podcast, all the Kings men. And so in the summertime, he approached me cause I was you know promoting my book was coming out and all this stuff. And he'd asked me if I'd be interested in, in participating in, uh, in, uh, in a regular segment about uh, Kings history. And so we started doing that in August. I've been doing that now every week since then. Uh, and then through the course of that, I kind of explained on the show that um, I had previously reached out to all these NHL clubs. And I was talking about this on the podcast, saying how, you know, I've talked to every NHL club before, asking if they had a team historian, asking if they wanted one. And for the most part, you know, none of them were receptive to the idea. And so I then reiterated that on Twitter and the Kings reached out on Twitter and, you know, they said, we never received an email from you. And then so I'm like, OK, well, then let's uh, let's talk. And so. From there, it's kind of progressed to the point now where I think we're uh, we're going to be uh, be doing some history for them as well as in addition to continuing the the podcasting uh, segments with with Jesse on all the Kings men. That's great. You're you're a hustler, man. I mean, that, that's what I'm getting from this. It seems to me that that these opportunities that you're talking about, none of them really fell in your lap. It seems like you you that's your philosophy when it when it comes to making this a reality. Is you're, you're just hustling your ass off. Oh yeah, no, I, I I will say that I am a grinder uh, for sure. If um, if there was one thing about me, it, it's definitely that. Uh, I definitely pursue these opportunities on my own. Um, it took knocking on and banging down a lot of doors to initially get a lot of those writing opportunities. I mean, I've been rejected more times than I've been published with places like Sportsnet and Vice, uh, but it didn't deter me because it was just something that you know I was passionate about. This is something that I wanted to do, uh, and so I just kept going. And yeah, I. That is that is my uh, I think that's probably one of my defining characteristics. If you talk to anybody is that uh, uh, I'm always always on my hustle, always on my grind, uh, whether it's, you know, trying to find new opportunities for places to write. Um, and then again, with my book that just came out a couple weeks ago, it's just I mean, it's it's been nonstop just trying to get the word out there for that as well. So I think that that's uh, that's definitely the, the, the two kind of go hand in hand that as much as I am passionate about uh about hockey and, and everything that goes with it, I am also, you know, I, I looking for all those opportunities myself. I want to get to your book in one minute, but I, I, I wanted to ask you about Twitter because you are a prolific tweeter uh, and you have a really cool account and yes. uh, pretty pretty decent sized following too. What is your social media strategy, and and how has something like Twitter kind of helped you on this journey? Would you say? I, I think Twitter actually led to uh, led to a lot of these opportunities. Um, 
it, it had been something that again I got into because when I was doing my when I was doing my dissertation, a lot of the environmental historians at the time were were logging onto Twitter and they were using it to share ideas and share their work. And I think that you know historians are also pretty savvy in terms of their utilization of social media. So it made sense at that point. But then, you know, as I obviously kind of shifted away from academia, uh, the account you know shifted to other areas of interest. You know, when I when I had a job at, at the at a think tank, you know, obviously a lot of my tweets were kind of focused about that. But then, you know, hockey started to creep in. Uh, I noticed that you know there are a lot of accounts out there that do a great job of conveying these daily moments in hockey history. Uh, but where I found that there was a, a market inefficiency was that a lot of these accounts didn't necessarily have multimedia or um, you know pictures or photos or, or video sorry to go with those tweets and so that kind of became my thing was that I would take those facts and and disseminate them but I would also accompany them with graphics uh, in order because again a tweet's going to go further if it has multimedia attached to it and so that really kind of started to build up my following uh, I had a lot of helpful people along the way who had recommended me you know to their followers and I think it's kind of grown from there and I mean I wouldn't have uh, a book right now if it wasn't for Twitter because the genesis for the book is kind of from you know what I do on my timeline every day which is share those daily moments in hockey history and that's kind of you know what my book is about uh, and so again I credit Twitter with I think providing me with a lot of these windows and, and opportunities because again I think I think certainly as my profile grew on Twitter uh, in the hockey community I think that certainly also uh, led to other opportunities with writing um, and again just meeting people and connecting and networking online uh, you know, led to opportunities as well. Uh, again, I mentioned earlier in that thing, uh, in that talk about the, the Kings Association, that again, that whole thing kind of came about from from a from a, a tweet. And I have another, you know, great example of of a, of a good uh, colleague of mine, uh, NHL history girl. Her name's Jen. You know, and, and her and I had, uh, you know, we run similar accounts. Jen's been doing it for a lot longer and a lot better than I have. Um, but her and I are. Uh, we have a good relationship and we've been, you know, connecting offline as well, not just, you know, online. And so we talked about a lot of this stuff and, you know, at, at one point she, she recommended me for this documentary for the NHL documentary. And, you know, she didn't have to do that. Um, it was, certainly wasn't uh, anything she needed to do. And so that led to a great opportunity for me and I'm forever grateful for her doing that. But again, I think that's, that's another example of how Twitter, you know, kind of worked for me is that again, it, it's not just being able to get your articles out there, or get your writing out there or, or highlight your, your, your account, it's the people and the connections you make online that also lead to other opportunities that you may not have expected. Let's, let's talk about your new book. It's called Hockey 365. I've already started reading it. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's like the, the perfect coffee table book, I think, for any, <laughs> any Canadian household needs this Thank book. Thank you. Um, yeah. I was hoping you could introduce the book and talk a little about it, and I'm really curious to know about what your writing and research project uh, a process was like. Yeah, so it's it's called uh, it's Hockey 365. So in in essence, it's 365 hockey history stories, one for every day of the year. Uh, although it should actually be called Hockey 366 because I did throw in an extra story for leap years, but. Obviously, Hockey 366 doesn't have the same ring, so it is Hockey 365. And so, like I'd mentioned, it, it really is kind of an offshoot of my Twitter account. But the writing process and the research process for that was, you know, I had to, I had all these little tidbits that I've been sharing online on social media. And I think you can take, not that I would take liberties with social media, but, you know, when I'm putting stuff out on Twitter, it's not the same. I don't take the same um I think process to, towards vetting it as I would if I were writing an article or let alone writing a book, right? So when it came time to put a lot of these moments into writing for a book, you know, I had to obviously do my due diligence as a historian, go back, review primary sources from the time, you know, consult secondary sources as well to make sure that one, that moment happened on the day that I thought it happened, and then really kind of get some background on and why is this moment important or why is this going to be interesting to the readers? And so it was uh, it was an arduous process at times. There were a few moments where I, you know, initially thought that this happened on this day. But after doing some some digging, uh, you know, I found that it actually happened on a different day or maybe it didn't even happen at all uh, on that particular day. And it was an, another moment. So uh, it, it was uh, it was taxing. But I think that that's kind of where my training came in is that, again, that was what I went to school for all those years was to do that type of research. And it was it was a lot of fun. You know, that was honestly probably the best part of the book for me was was 
pulling together all that information and starting to flesh it out. What's what is it, what is it going to look like? You know, once you start to pull all those stories together, uh, and then the writing. Yeah, it was. Um, once I had the story ideas and I had the information to go off of, it kind of just. Uh, I put myself on a very rigorous schedule because I had six months to f- to turn the manuscript around, which was insane. Uh, you know, working a, a full time job at Cambrian, and then at the time, my daughter she wasn't even she hadn't turned one yet, and so she was still uh, it was still a, lo- a lot of work around the house with with her and my wife, and so they were both very patient with me. They allowed me to do the writing a lot at night, um, but yeah, it was it was a whirlwind, and so it's it's great now that it's done. And I can see it uh, on the shelves and, and, and in my hands. I'm sure this will be a difficult question to answer, but do you have like a favorite story from the book or one that you found that you just thought, oh, that's that's special? There there are a lot that, uh, that are interesting, but the one that's special for me is um, is uh, there. I, I don't insert myself into the narrative at all in the book except for this one moment. Um, so it's it's. I, I wrote about Austin Matthews is um, his NHL debut, October 12, 2016. For those of you that don't know about this, so Matthews was first overall pick uh, by the Maple Leafs uh, in 2016, and obviously was this highly touted prospect. You know, game changing abilities that the franchise had been lacking for for many years, and so um, it was, there was a lot of hype going into this game, and so we certainly you know figured that he was going to have a a great showing. He ends up scoring four goals, which is unheard of. In the modern era, no player had ever scored four goals in their NHL debut. Even if you go back to the games, uh, the NHL's first games in 1917, you had players that had scored five goals in their debut, but these guys were, you know, they were they were veterans at this point. They'd been playing in the NHL's precursor league, you know, and they were also 28 and 29 years old. So they were not, you know, a young uh, rookie like Austin Matthews. But I digress. The reason why that story is so important to me, it's not because I'm a Leafs fan. Obviously, that is a great moment in Leafs history. But it was because for me, um, I, I watched that game with my daughter. She was two weeks old. She was wearing Maple Leafs pajamas. It was the first hockey game that she would have been um, that she would have watched. Although she didn't watch it, she slept because she was a newborn. Um, but for me, it was a special moment because that'll always be you know what was the first the first time that we watched a hockey game together was, you know, Austin Matthews' debut. And maybe she'll grow up and she won't even want to watch hockey with me, and that would be absolutely fine. But I'll always have that memory of watching that game with her, you know, and, and, and my wife as well. And even my wife, who who tolerates hockey, understands at least how much I, I like the sport. You know, even she was in disbelief at how many goals, you know, Matthews had scored. But 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 beyond the result on the score sheet, um, yeah, for me it was just a special moment because, you know, it was the, the first game for Zoe and I. And so I made a point that, you know, in that in that story that I included in the book that I mentioned, you know, the part about Zoe and I. And, and, and so that's that's the one that always rises to the top for me. Yeah, I remember that game. Well, that was uh, that was something. And that segues perfectly into my next question, kind of shifting focus a little bit. Uh, you became a father a couple of years ago. I'm at the age now where, where all my all my male friends are becoming fathers for the first time, it seems like. And I'm not a father. I'm still a bachelor. Um what is that like and and how on earth do you maintain some semblance of work-life balance because you're a really busy guy like how how do you approach that it's been it's been incredible um you know you you i guess you you don't really prepare for it right you just kind of think that you'll be prepared and then you kind of just figure it out as you go uh but she's unbelievable um you know she makes our lives so much better, I think. Uh, but in terms of balancing it all out, you know, we, my wife and I have this new rule now. Well, it's, uh, it's a rule that we've are officially enforcing now is that, you know, when I come home from work I throw the phone in the drawer until Zoe goes to bed, mm. uh, you know, and she goes to bed at seven o'clock. So it's really not that big of a sacrifice for me. I think it just makes sense that, you know, you, you spend those two hours, you know, completely untethered from your device and, and actually just, just hang out with the family. And so it's, um, and, and those are, that's the greatest moment that you, you know, when you come home from work and you see her standing at the window and she's waving to you or she's screaming, screaming your name, um, that, that's what you, you know, that's what makes it all worthwhile at the end of the day, that all the work that I put into trying to, you know, to, to get these opportunities, but also just to, to go to work every day to, to provide for her, it's all worth it when you come home. And so I'm able to balance that because family is obviously a priority for me. And so, 
you know, until she goes to bed, I try not to do any, anything related to any, anything related to work or hockey stuff. And then after she goes to bed, obviously that's, uh, that's, we can kind of do our own thing, but I also make sure that, you know, it's not just hockey from when Zoe goes to bed until I go to bed, because obviously, uh, you know, my, my wife will only take so much hockey and, and so much work. Right. So I think it is, it is important to have that balance. Um, I do have the tendency to be a workaholic, I think if I, if I was left to my own devices, but, uh, but you know, it's, you you can't have that at the end of the day, right. At, at, at the end of the day, there's other things that are more important and other things can wait. And even when I was writing the book, it was an insane process. Uh, but I always made sure that I tried to structure my, most of my work during the week so that on the weekends, you know, I wasn't, you know, locked away in my office on Saturday and Sunday that we were spending that time with the family and then I could do some work at night, but I always, you know, have to carve out time, uh, for the family. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when do you think the first time you're going to try to put her on skates? How old, how old are kids when they start skating? I'm going to put her on skates this year. She'll, uh, she just turned two a couple of weeks ago or last weekend, sorry. Uh, but she has Bob skates, which are kind of, I guess, like, I guess they'd be the training wheels equivalent of skates. Mm. And so I'll bring her to the rink near our house. Uh, I don't know how that'll go, but, uh, <laughs> but it'll be, a, it'll be a fun moment for sure for me to have her on the ice with me for the first time. That's great, man. No, this was, this was a lot of fun. Um, okay. So the book is called Ho- hockey three, six, five. It's available on Amazon and, and, uh, I think a lot of online booksellers. And if people want to connect with you online, Mike, yep. what's, what's the best way they can do that? The best way to connect with me is, is definitely through Twitter. That's where you find uh, all those hockey history moments. That's where you'll find any of my other writing that I do for the Wolves and other places like the Kings eventually. Uh, and that's where I'll, you'll find stuff about the book as well. And so that's uh, it's at Mike Comito, C-O-M-M-I-T-O. And yeah, that's that's usually the best spot. And the Kings podcast is called All the Kings Men. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. I'll look forward to hearing that. Well, yeah. Mike, thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun for me. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a great, great chat. Well, there you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Mike is a lot of fun, and uh, it was great to connect with him again. And if you'd like to connect with him and you'd like links to everything we talked about, In today's episode, you can go to humansinlove.com to find all the links you need. Before I let you go, I'll tell you that we are off next week, or should I say I am off? I don't know why I said we, it's just me, really. (laughs) But I am off next week. I'm taking a bit of a holiday, and I'm not sure about my internet, so I thought I would just take the week off, flying down to Phuket uh, in the south of Thailand for the curious. Anyway, I'm off next week, but I'll be with you again on the, what is it, the 23rd? Whatever the next Tuesday is, uh, the Tuesday after next Tuesday, I'll talk to you again. I thought it would be appropriate this week to play you out with a bit of new music, new Canadian music, I should say. Um, As a partial result of, I mean, years I wrote a lot about music online, and as a result, I'm still in all these mailing lists for record companies and stuff, so I get sent new music all the time. Usually I don't really do anything with it, but... I thought it might be interesting to start sharing music that I'm enjoying on this podcast and in the process maybe help some new artists get a bit of exposure. So today's track, today's closing track comes to us from a band called Victory Chimes out of Canada. The song is called Halos. Thanks for listening, my friends. I will talk to you again in two Tuesdays from now. Remember that life is short, far too short to not enjoy sports once in a while, I think. Thanks a lot, folks, and I'll talk to you very soon.
lot of drops. 